Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit ByteRadio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Jan Phillips, and we'll be talking about her journey as well as her new book, Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic. Author Jan Phillips was a devoted Catholic who wanted nothing more than to be a nun and who joyfully entered the convent at 18. Two years later, she was dismissed for, quote, a disposition unsuited to religious life with excessive and exclusive friendships, unquote. She was a lesbian, and she always had known that. It was being a homosexual that made me want to kill myself at 12, she writes. As far as I knew, there was nothing worse than being queer. Over the years, she created a life of love, service, community, and prayer. She evolved her understanding of God and came to see herself and all of us as the light of the world. Had I not been born gay, my heart would not have been broken in half, would not have opened itself to love supreme, would not have been tenderized by life's bitter pounding. For more information about her book and other books and uh, blog and everything else, visit Jan's website, which is janphillips.com. Hello, Jan. Thanks for joining me today. Hey there. I'm glad to be here. Well, one of the things that um, I noticed in, in doing the show now for 12 years is that sometimes there will be um, an upcoming show where I'm kind of, um, it's kind of thrown into my awareness of you know a, a topic that's related to the show that I really kind of need to talk about, and that was what happened with today's show. Um, it has to uh, it revolves around the idea of teenage suicide or youth suicide, um, and I, I had just seen a, a TV show last night, um, a recorded show that happened to show uh, part of the storyline was that, um, and I had a friend call me, ask me about today's show. And, and when I mentioned what it was all about, happened to say that as a youth, he also had had those thoughts. And in, in his case, it was an, an abusive father. So um, what I want to start with is, you know, what I read, you know, about that age of 12, you know, that, that point, um, you know, would you mind sharing with the listeners just a little bit about that, you know, for, for if not for one who is listening that is experiencing that, at least for maybe people around them or, you know, the the adults in, in that kind of life, in someone's life. Sure. I, I think that when a child is entering into puberty, we begin to get a sense of our sexuality at that age. And, and we've long before that age gotten all the cultural messaging we're going to get from our religions, our families, culture at large, movies, about, you know, the issues of homosexuality. And back when I was that age, it was in the early 
in the 50s, actually. I was born in 1949. So it was in the 50s and 60s when I was grappling with this terrible discovery that, uh-oh, I, uh-oh, I'm queer. <laughs> uh-oh, what could be worse? You know, I can't tell anybody. I didn't want anyone to find out. It, it, it just felt like a curse. And so I was in sixth grade when I decided I just better kill myself because God hates queers. You know, the church says it's all wrong. All my teachers say it's all wrong. So what, what goes through a kid's head, right, prior to becoming a teenager is how wrong it is to be wrong and to be different, to be, especially in a category where all the words are so ugly that, you know, I was continually going to different dictionaries just to see was there a kind definition of who I was Mm -hmm. and what Mm -hmm. did they mean by pervert and, you know, just what is a bull dyke and a faggot? You know, what are all these things and why do they feel so terrible? So, you know, I never really actually attempted suicide. The farthest I got Mm -hmm. was, um, you know, writing notes. I would write a note to my family that just started out saying, dear, dear everyone, this isn't your fault. I was just born bad. Don't feel sad. I'm just having to, you know, leave because I don't fit in anywhere. And so... I would crumple up my little note, my little suicide note, and put it on top of the bathroom trash can and just kind of hope somebody would find it and talk to me and help me sort things out. But no one ever did. You know, I tried it a few times, but it just so happened that my sixth grade nun discerned, really, that I was a bright wonderful kid who was going down the dark path and so she called my mom and said I have a an idea to help her out it's called positive reinforcement and I'm going to do it here in school and I'd like you to do it there at home and you know it just meant basically let this kid applaud her for everything she does well and affirm her constantly and my mom wasn't that excited about it because, you know, my mom's one of 14 kids and none of them got affirmed yeah. very often. And, you know, she only had three of us. But, you know, she just didn't want to pick one out of the litter and give it all mm-hmm. her attention. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my, I don't remember that my mom really participated much in it, but the nun at school went crazy over it and just constantly you know you know said oh jam phillips you you write on the blackboard so well come on up here and write this poem on the blackboard oh you're the best speller in the spelling bee and oh what an athlete you are she just went all out and did it in spades and i remember waking up one day and i was just transformed like the the sad little caterpillar had become a butterfly because this nun had made it happen. And that was the day I decided to be a nun because I thought they had a magic wand or some (laughs) secret superpower. 
that she could save my life and convince me that I was fabulous. And so that was the end of my suicidal phase because how could you be loved so much by somebody and want to kill yourself? It's like every day I went to school and got more and more affirmation from her. So that's what got me out of my predicament. Wow. And so um, that's why I decided to be uh, a nun. (laughs) Well, you know, and and, and it it was the effect that she had. I mean, that is, you know, to go from a dark place, such a dark place, to recognizing one's worth is is, um, a wonderful swing of the pendulum. Now, when I... Um, I looked up to see what the the statistics, what the, the you know, regularity was with this, because I knew it wasn't a you know a big issue. But anyway, what what I found was from the Centers for Disease Control last year, they said that suicide was the second leading cause of death among young people, with the LGBTQ youth being four times more likely to either seriously consider. Uh, to make a plan for suicide, um, to attempt suicide more than their peers. So, you know, if, if, you know, there is, you know, if someone listening to you as, you know, one of those youth who's kind of going through what you went through, like that dark period, um, definitely start with, I at least start with the positive reinforcement, you know, because it it seemed to work for you, did it not? Sure did. Yeah. So, well, you know, I mean, that was in the 50s and 60s, and things have changed, you know, a bit. I mean, the things that we see on TV, kids see on TV now, you know, in the 50s and 60s, there was like absolutely no way you would begin to see that on TV. So, they're, you know, right. today's youth are kind of um, aware um, of homosexuality, um, you know, a bit more than obviously we were, because I'm right there with you in the in the 50s and 60s. Um, so knowing kind of today's environment, um, what would you say to, you know, listeners who maybe have someone in their circle who is, you know, kind of going through that dark period? What, I mean, what would you suggest? Where would they start to... Um, maybe ask, like you you were hoping people would find and ask, talk to you. Well, you know, when that nun, Sister Helen Charles, brought me out of my dark time, you know, it didn't have anything to do with conversations about, you know, sexuality or gender orientation or anything like that because, you know, one never did talk about those things to children, but um, she just loved me up, right? And that's what caused mm. me to feel okay about myself, that somebody who really cares for me and sees me loves me that deeply that she would notice that I'm a good scholar, I'm a good athlete, I'm a good artist, I'm a good this and that. And that is what caused the caused me to begin to enter into the fullness of who I was becoming as a person. And and nowadays, you know, I think the conversations about gender and sexuality are are a lot more frequent 
because there's so many kids now who are questioning their gender identity and deciding, you know, just making decisions about I want to try something else, right? I've got two people in my family that are transgendering, and it's it's just more in the air now, people's opportunities to have more diverse and creative lives you know, is leading us to have these conversations with people. But if anybody has some young person in their life who they feel is troubled by this or challenged by it, I think just open up the conversation and say, hey, what's going on? You don't seem as, you know, happy as you used to be. What's going on? You you know, I don't see a smiling like I used to. And to encourage, you know, conversations of consequence and not just shine it on and pretend it doesn't exist, but to really have the courage to enter into somebody's arena as a loving person and a loving force and say, I'm I'm noticing this about you. What's going on? I think that's all that any of us want, no matter what age we are. People noticing us, people inquiring, people, you know, not filling the space with their commentary, but really inviting right. from us, you know, what are we feeling? Yeah, that's very, very true. And, and to, you know, inquire without judgment, <laughs> you know, just yeah. listen, you know, and be yeah, be, be receptive kind of to, to what is being said. So, yeah, well, and and love them up. <laughs> That's going to be one of the yep. things I remember from Tanisha, to love them up. So the title of your memoir is Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic. Uh, why did you choose that particular title? Because I really, I feel, I'm a social activist, and I feel because I have grown up and spent all my life in the body of a queer and dealt with all the ramifications of that, including getting kicked out of the convent, getting, you know, basically rejected from my family for a while, disavowed, you know, can't, my sister went through a period where she said, it's not, I don't want you around my kids. You know, there's just a lot of turbulence that comes with this kind of, of a disposition or whatever one would call it. An orientation, I guess, is more like it. But as soon as I announced to my mom that I was gay, suddenly she doesn't want me to be around my father because she's afraid I'm going to tell him he'll have a heart attack. I'll be responsible (laughs) for his death. So it's, you know, there are big, big ramifications of this, and it's all part of our growth process but I definitely when it's time to write a memoir as a queer you do not you know skirt over the issue of what happens when you grow up in a homophobic culture and so and also it's largely because of religion you know the church is the biggest voice about how terrible homosexuality is whether you're Catholic, whether you're Pentecostal, fundamentalist, Southern Baptist, evangelical, it doesn't matter. It's just primarily this message came down from, you know, mistranslations of the Bible, let's face it, right? 
and terrible stories of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like a confusing, confusing mistranslation of that of sacred scriptures, which led to the church saying, "Okay, homosexuality is terrible." Where. As in the world at large, we now know that the more diversity, the more creative, the more healthy the culture is. So I definitely, because religion was a big force in my life as as a Catholic. Where it's, it's installed like software in the young Catholic's being. It's just installed through every sense, incense, candles, ritual, vessels. I mean, the Catholics do ritual in in spades. They just do it like nobody ever else could do it. And so, I have to say, I have to say, I'm just to show you. I was an altar boy for years. Um, Had to when I started, I had to learn mass in Latin, which I not one iota of what I was saying. Um, But I mean, you know, and everything from the ceremony, the bells, and all. So I mean, it's I'm very familiar with with that ritual even to this day. You know, um, if something comes on TV, like one of the prayers start on TV, it's like I'm ready there to recite it. You know, right know, there, we that, have. I mean, it was yeah. it was just like a tape memorized. Mm-hmm. So yeah, sorry, right. I just wanted to let you know I understand exactly where you're coming from. So anyway, because and then of course I couldn't. After I'm dismissed from the convent, I go to the priest, I tell him I'm homosexual, and then he won't give me absolution. And he says, you can't get the sacraments if you continue to act out as a gay person in this culture. And I'm and I'm saying, I, I have to live a life as a gay person. You know, he goes, no, you don't. Just stop it. But that... that I said, that's like asking me to have brown eyes instead of blue. I cannot change anything about who I am, and I'm not going to limit, you know, who I love. And so the rejection from that whole church thing, from the whole combat thing, became, you know, so I became churchless, right? I had no place to celebrate my faith, and so I just left it and became a cultural, social activist. And as a result of that and making a a peace pilgrimage around the world, I encountered Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, all the other global faith traditions, which, you know, showed me some other pathways to express myself as a spiritual being in this world. Until I began meditative practice, made up my own prayers, started writing my own music that had a spirit, started singing with other women, doing singing for the soul every week. And, you know, I continued to express myself as a spiritual being, even though Catholicism abandoned me and rejected me. So once somebody makes a decision to take responsibility for your own spiritual authority, there's not a long distance between that and a, living a mystical life because mysticism is just an unmediated relationship to divine power, you know, to the creative source. And so 
to have the subtitle be Field Notes from a Queer Mystic was my signaling to the reader, okay, you got a queer writer here. So it says to the LGB community, this would be a safe book to read. And then you got a mystic here, which says to that all the people in the Exodus movement that are leaving their churches because the churches are no longer relevant, says to the potential reader, okay, I'm redefining mysticism here. I'm going to take you to a new place because who would dare put those two things together? Me. Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> excuse me. It is a unique combination. So, um, and I'm sure I hadn't, but I'm sure if I just googled um, Google it, it would come back. Uh, you would probably be right there at the at the top of the list. So, but but you know, and but the fact is, is that both words um, are major facets of who you are. So, I mean, it's you know, it just makes sense. Um, now. You, in the book, you talk, what did you, you talk say, about the Mace, book as those being, words are, Hold on, I'm, I have to, have to have you go back. What did you say those two words were? Major what? Facets, you know, components of your. Oh yes, okay. Who you are? Yeah. Yes. All right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, and and you know, if it's going to be a memoir, you obviously want it to be descriptive of your journey to date so now um the book you talk about the book as being um kind of going from religious wounding to spiritual healing and you know that that piece tour that you took opening you up to the different religions um do you feel that in today's world that it is because we um can experience that variety. We don't have to travel the world literally, but we can from our desk. Um, do you feel that that is what is um, leading to that um, big exodus from the church, along with maybe you know the kind of dogmatic thinking? Well, I think people are leaving the churches because they're looking for integrity. They're looking for trusting relationships. They're looking for honesty and agency. They're looking for what Jesus was about. And there's not a lot of churches that really have that nailed, right? It's it's mm-hmm. so much about keeping the establishment going, getting people in the pews, getting enough money, kind of a lack of integrity. I mean, I can only really talk about the Catholic Church and that and what they have done to the queer community is just unconscionable. I read the other day there was a woman, a gay woman whose mother at her mother's funeral, the priest refused her communion. That's how <laughs> sick it is. That's what's yeah. perverted, not us. Actions like that you know, and when you think of the man Jesus and how he spoke to people and how he loved people and encouraged that kind of compassionate behavior towards each other, how far away we've come from that. That's the travesty of our times. And there's no wondering why there's an exodus movement away from the churches right now. 
you know. Yeah, you know, that it's the idea of there is only one way, and it's my way, you know, to, you know, achieving heaven or, you know, just to achieving that, you know, great beyond. Um, you know, that, that to me that, you know, begins, it immediately builds walls where there really should not be walls. Right. Yeah. And focusing on the exterior God who's got the whole mm-hmm. world in his hands. And so that <laughs> makes us abdicate our power and just go, God will take care of climate crisis. God will take care of everything. And to me, we're at the point in our evolution right now where if we do not to face the fact that we're co-creative with divinity, that this is our planet and this is our planet in our hands. And we cannot keep abdicating to some external father who's going to save our sorry asses because nothing <laughs> like that is going to happen. If we do not do the work, if we do not find our oneness with each other, if we do not start caring for right. our mother planet, then it will disappear. The rainforest will be gone. We won't be able to breathe the air. The, the waters are poisoned. It's like we know the apocalypse that's coming if we don't turn it around. But religions uh, have not yeah. been helpful in that regard. No, I, I agree. I agree. And, and it is important to... Um, to take things in, in our own hands. And, and actually, we're about halfway through the show, Jan, so I want to take just a quick break. And then when we come back, um, one of the things, you know, when you were talking about um, taking things in our own hands um, is that you you talk about the importance of stories of transformation, you know, how important stories of transformation are. You, and you mentioned the butterfly and the caterpillar earlier. So when we come back, um, maybe we can talk about, about transformation and, you know, how it applies you know, globally as, as well as culturally. Okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,600 shows that we have had during the past 12 years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, nature photography, calendars, and 5x7 photo greeting cards. Our show is a free podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms on the top of our homepage. Our website, ByteRadio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. 
And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone. Thank you for staying with us. Again, today, my special guest is Jan Phillips, and we are talking about her journey as well as her new book, Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic. For more information, you can visit Jan's website, which is janphillips.com. Okay, with that, we're back, Jan. Mm-hmm. I got you there. I'm okay. back. So, okay, great. So um, before we talk about stories of transformation, I want to talk about stories. You know, when there was a part in your book, what I read, that it says, and it just kind of stuck out at me, um, much of what we know comes from the stories of others. I learned from the storytellers to examine my experience, forgive the trespasses, harvest the wisdom, give thanks for growth. So can you talk a little bit um, about, you know, the idea of stories, you know, how, how other people's stories impact ours and then how we can guide that or mold that? Yeah, I think our stories are all we have. And so imagine driving in the old days when we used to drive home from work and you're going to say you're imagine, you're going to get home, you're going to be with your spouse or your partner, you're going to sit down and have a glass of Chardonnay, and then you're going to tell the story of what happened that day. And so on the drive home, you're making it up, and you're the hero, and everyone else is the villains, and shit happened, and <laughs> that's how the story goes, Right. The hero enters the forest, meets with the demons, the battle ensues, there's a conflict, and then there's a resolution. And the resolution ends up with everyone living happily ever after, hopefully. So, you know, we learned the power of story as little toddlers when everybody, when anybody ever sat down with a book and read us mm-hmm. a story and we were fascinated because stories just captivate human beings that's that's you know they were telling stories around campfires before we had refrigerators and stoves so i you know i i encourage people i lead i facilitate weekend workshops called story spinning which gives everybody a chance to like tell us a sad story and so they tell a sad story and then we look at it from other angles. And it turns out that the sad story can be resurrected as a happily ever after story with a little bit of attention and skill and finessing it. And so what we find out is the stories of our lives, right? I had a story of my life that was the worst thing that ever happened to me was being kicked out of the convent. And I couldn't get over it. In 20 years, it's always Mm -hmm. still the same thing. It's 1989. It's 20 years after the event, and I'm still sad about it because I haven't figured out how to heal my broken heart. And so I found out that the sister who was in charge of my big mother house where we were all in the convent was now living in Syracuse, New York, where I was living. 
and I asked her mm-hmm. if she would sit with me and allow me to tell her the story of how sad I am to see if what could happen because I haven't been able to heal my heart. And so she did right. this. She said, yes, come in. You can come and sit with me. And so I said, the rule is, let me, I'm going to start when I was 12 years old and tell you up until right now what happened. And don't interrupt, and then after I'm done, then you talk. So I told her the whole story, why I went into the convent, why they kicked me out, what happened, et cetera, et cetera. And at the end, she says to me, will you forgive me for this terrible injustice that was done to you on my watch? Because she was the head honcho of the whole household Mm. of 400 sisters. I said, yes. I I wasn't anticipating that. It kind of surprised me. Go, yes, I forgive you for this. And then she said, will you forgive the entire community? of the Sisters of St. Joseph of Carondelet for this terrible injustice that was done to you. I said, yes, I forgive the entire community for the terrible injustice that was done to me. And at that moment, something happened, which was transformative. As if, you know, the light of the universe pours through my window and enters into my consciousness. And I said to her, oh, my God, I said, there's nothing to forgive. I said, I I should be thanking you for the privilege of two years of a monastic life and for you all knowing that it wasn't a good fit in letting me go. I had this illuminating insight that I don't know was provoked maybe by her asking for forgiveness or by us acknowledging Mm -hmm. a terrible injustice had been done to me. I don't know what, but as a result, I understood that I was grateful to them, to that whole community for letting me be there for two years. And not only that, Um, I could see how this was on my drive home from the convent. I actually saw all the images of what I had had engaged with to get myself kicked out of the convent, right? All the activities I did, Mm -hmm. you know, stealing Mm -hmm. Pepsi, taking wine, smoking (laughs) in the woods, you know, kissing novices. Every activity I engaged in, was something that I did in order to co-create that I would be dismissed. Mm -hmm. So that's what I say. If everybody were to take a story of your life where you said somebody done me wrong and turn it into a country western tune, then... (laughs) If you look at it from another perspective, you will you could see how you co-created that, how you had some agency in the matter, and how it ultimately led to you being the person who you are today. So you needed that. You know, like I consider myself in the winner's seat today, but I needed 
that travesty. I needed the turbulence and I needed the tragedy of it in order to have it give me some yeah. gravitas. Well, yeah, you know, and, and the thing is, and, and and I really am happy that you shared that story because, you know, the idea of um, what appeared to be um, injustice and, and it was something that you carried for a long time, you know, with that perspective, um, having it changed to recognize that there was, you know, you were guided, you know, there was that traumatic experience of, of being kicked out, but that kind of adjusted the path, you know, the, the one that was better suited for your happiness. And, and, you know, and I think many times when people go through all different types of tragedy that, you know, it's kind of important to look to where it is pointing for for a way out. Doesn't that... Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Hmm. So now, with, with the, the um, you, you talked a little bit about your social activism, and then I, I, when I read that you kind you your book, you're working on your book at the time when the um, there were you know there was that block uh, the protest in the street on, on social injustice and and how that impacted you. Would, would you mind sharing in, in there was a um, also one of the scenes um, that you had had about uh, how you know social activism is kind of who you are you know or it's you with running shoes um, something to that effect can you talk a little bit about um, the importance of social activism. Why not? I mean, why is it important to be in the streets showing your support? I believe that my activism is my spirituality in running shoes. So we all have, well, I can't say all of us. I'll speak for myself. I have a spirituality that begins every morning with you know, me in silence with a candle burning, doing my meditation, saying my prayers, you know, for about an hour, mindfulness. And that's all well and good. But I think that's more like the Buddhist thing, right? Buddha came around 500 years mm-hmm. before Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus comes in fulfillment of Buddhist thing, which is be still and see that everything's unfolding perfectly. And Jesus comes along as the next master and said, oh, but good works are important. We have to stand up for each other. We have to, you know, help the poor. We have to speak out with the marginalized, right? We have to use our voices in a compassionate way and, and, and co-create a world that's fair and just for everyone. That's what Jesus came to tell us that it's our action in the world. You know, come follow me. Look what I do. See how I take care of these people. And he gave us really good examples, both in stories and in his actions, right? And so Mm -hmm. to me, part 
of my perfect life is the silence and contemplation and mindfulness. And the other part is what do I make of my creative potential? Where do I dedicate and put, where do I put my feet in my hands and how do I co-create with people? And that is the action that causes one to feel like my life has purpose, my life has passion when we actually live out our faith or our spirituality. So, say for example, uh, I when I make a decision, what am I going to do in my local community? I live in San Diego. I'm on the border. We have a huge lot of issues with migrants and people trying to come into this country. So, therefore, a, a pure expression of my faithfulness would be to try and help out in that situation. What what can I do in that situation? Well, the Jewish Family Services has organized, you know, for volunteers to be helpful. There's places where the migrants are gathered. They need three meals a day. You know, so I can go and put on a hairnet and serve lunch and clean up after and sweep the floors and that and that might take me, you know, two and a half hours once a week. But I feel when I do something like that, it's very real and it's engaged and it's how my prayers come to life. So that's a real and discreet activity that, you know, I can engage Mm -hmm. in. When George Floyd's murder kind of rang the bells around our country, time to act, Mm -hmm. time to act up, time to act out, time to speak out, time to march, then, you know, I was in as many demonstrations as I could get myself to. In here in San Diego, and if I went to Chicago to lead a workshop, I would march there with the people. When I was in Ferguson doing a workshop, I was there the weekend that Ferguson erupted because Michael Brown, I think was his name, got killed. And I said after the workshop, you know, take me to Ferguson. I want to be part of that mass action. No no justice, no peace, you know. So we do it however we do it. Right. And we do it locally. I mean, I took a world, I went around the world for peace. That Nobody's going to do that, right? But I did it because I, you know, it was right <laughs> for me at the time. And it was exciting proposition. And I, did, I worked for a year and a half. I saved up $5,000 and... I did it for a year and relied on the kindness of strangers. That's how come my money could last so long. But, you know, and that became my first book, Making Peace, One Woman's Journey Around the World. So, you know, I harvested those stories, and that's what creative people do. But all of us end up telling stories. I mean, you go into any bar you go to any party, (laughs) 
you know, you listen to any homily, and if there's not stories there, then you go somewhere else. Because we're all looking for stories of consequence, right? We're looking to be with people who are harvesting the events of their lives in such a way that they give it back to you, and it's like the moral of the story is this. You know, don't just tell me boring right. stories. <laughs> so, give me one with you know, meaning. Be, yeah, give me something that, ha- that has a punch. So yeah, I well, you know, a storyteller and I coach people at storytelling. There you go. Yeah, and, and it's, it's, um, it's wonderful. I mean, life is a series of stories while what you know other people's stories as well as the one that we're creating now the you, when you talked about the activism locally like in San Diego and the border case um one of the things we kind of touched a little bit about was uh earth you know the the the, the state of our planet as far as the health of the planet or lack of. Um, obviously, I would think that you would agree, you would probably say that, like the spiritual example, that with global um, ecology, it begins at that local level. Um, what, what what is your just your view right now of the state of our planet and our and, and the attention that it's getting or not? Well, I think we're in a crisis mode, and I think, you know, I can't say that I'm filled with hope that we're going to turn mm-hmm. it around. Although I subscribe to public, you know, every day I get optimists daily in my email box that tells me good news about what people are doing. So I'm, I get Yes Magazine, which is full of positive news about the future. So I'm aware of what millennials and Gen Xers are doing to, you know, cause us to care more carefully towards this planet, uh, whether or not it'll be sufficient. You know, I think this country lacks any moral will anymore. And so we don't have any kind of commitment. You know, you listen to the news now, there's no commitment to climate change. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, does Joe Manchin want to take that out of the budget? Yes. Right? So, Because mm-hmm. no, he's in a coal state <laughs> and he wants to protect the coal industry. So, right. it, you know, exactly. you can't avoid it. But I think every person, everybody who hears this broadcast, you know, has... If I were to say to you, what what's the worst thing happening to our planet right now? You might say, all the plastic in the ocean is killing the the ocean creatures. Somebody else might say, oh, the terrible puppy factories. Somebody else will say, the rainforests are burning. They're burning the Amazon to make room for cows so that we can have more burgers for people in the United States. I mean, it's very real. It's very visual. You can you can Google rainforest burning and just see it. It's happening in order to make room for cattle, right? 
So depending mm-hmm. on what your issue is, you could figure out a way to address it. Like I could write a check to Rainforest Alliance or I could Google Rainforest Work in San Diego, right? Or I could yeah. see mm-hmm. voluntary cleaning up. I know when people go to the beaches and volunteer to clean up crap from the sand, right? So I go down there on that Saturday morning with a few bags and help volunteer. You know, it's just put on your apron and your work boots. Don't tell me you don't know what to do. Everybody knows how to Google. And just go ask your heart, where what causes your heart to break open the most? And then figure out what you love to do and do that. If you love to golf and your heart is breaking open about LGBT teens killing themselves, organize a golf tournament. Raise money for, you know, Dignity, which is a Catholic organization that works with, you know, gay teens. What you love to do to work, raise some money for these organizations. You know, when I went on my trip around the world, half halfway through, my money was beginning to diminish. And so I wrote a letter to all my friends and said, hey, I'm out here doing the work for you. You can sit in your, you know, lounging chairs and drink your Bud Light and watch football, but send me money because I will do your conscientious work for you. And they did, Uh you know. Okay, glad to hear it. You know, I'll send you 25 bucks. You keep on doing it. You know, we have to come up with creative approaches to how we're going to be activists in the world. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, the pandemic um, showed us dramatically the impact that we have, you know, just by that um, slowdown in, you know, in, in manufacturing and, in, in, you know, the clearing of the air, um, wildlife coming up. Um, you know, it really showed us, you know, our impact. I mean, it was a very definite um Sign, yeah, globally, you know, I think so. Now, obviously, things are kind of going back, the pendulum swinging back, but hopefully, we we continue to have that that uh, seed of awareness that we can actually make a difference, you know, as much as we can. And and I had to to laugh too. One of the local, or one of the recent stories was um, about uh, Prince George and, and his his. Uh, schools work at picking up litter, you know, picked up litter one time, one day, and then had to go back the next day and pick it up again and had to ask uh, and, um, his father, well, um, why? Why was it that I had to do it one day and then it was the same day, same thing the next day? So, I mean, it was like, you know, kids, I think, are asking the right questions, you know, so yeah. hopefully they're going to be able to think creatively for some for some answers as well. Yeah. So, yeah. So now um, I understand that that you have a foundation. Is, is that correct? Yes, I do. I have a can living you, kindness uh, foundation. Yeah, living kindness. So, can you tell living us? Living kindness. Um, yeah, living kindness foundation. So, tell us about the foundation. Kind of how it came about, and and um, who. Um, 
benefits from that foundation? Well, in 2010, I was invited to go to Nigeria to lead a, a visionary leadership workshop for a group of nuns. And the the nun that invited me, she was the only non-Nigerian sister. She was from Kansas. And she had been in Nigeria for 25 years. And she ran an NGO called Hope for the Village Child. And her NGO is just kind of international nonprofit. And so her group of people, her staff, um, worked with about five or six different villages around where their building was and saw to it that the kids were get you know they would get a try to get a well built try to get education try to get rickets avoidance you know shots etc and so i said to the nun yeah i'll come to nigeria and do the workshop over the weekend but I would like one of your staff people to take me to four or five villages so I could see the work that you're doing. And on the, at the end of the day, the last village we drove into, the kids were still lined. It was the middle of the afternoon. The kids were lined up outside their little, what would be called a school, which is, if you can imagine, about the size of a single wide trailer with four wow. different mm-hmm. classrooms, no no floor, no windows, no books, no desks, but standing outside the school waiting for a teacher to come, like two or three in the afternoon. So the Land Rover pulls up and the kids all run. They open up my door. They grab my sleeve. They pull me into their (laughs) classroom. They all sit down on the floor and they say, be our teacher. Be our teacher. And I didn't know what to do. I said, what's two plus two? They all go, four. They were so excited. I said, oh, my God, these kids, these are, they've been taught. I go, what's seven plus eight? Thinking I'd trip them up. They all say, they're so proud and enthusiastic. And I just start crying right in front of them, aware of what a tragedy it was that they didn't have a teacher there and they're all kids wanting it so badly. So I said, this is your lucky day. I'm going to try and work really hard to help get teachers up here so you'll have a teacher here all day, every day. And so I went back to talk to Sister Rita and we brainstormed and figured out maybe what could happen is we could get the tribal chief to donate a piece of land and then we could get the villagers to build a building and then I would, we would have a classroom in the building and on each end of the building would be an apartment for two teachers. And then I I could write, so that was as far as we got. We need to have teachers be up there in the village because you cannot get up if those were in the rainy season, if you don't have a four-wheel drive vehicle or a motorcycle. And so it was the problem was with the roads. And so we said, okay, let's make a house and house two teachers. 
And so we created the idea of the Living Kindness Learning Center. And that's what happened. The chief donated, the villagers made it, made the bricks, put it together, and I raised the $25,000 that it cost to build. There's no electricity or plumbing, so it was quite cheap. And they got it all built within three years, and then I got more grants and got 30 computers loaded with, like, appropriate software, and they're learning. So the whole village is learning, you know, about organic farming, and the kids are learning all their school stuff, and it's it's solar-powered now, and that was a great success. But I was done in Nigeria. And so then I decided to dedicate what money I had left to what I considered to be the worst social problem in in this country, which I think is racism. And so now I'm funding, you know, I have given scholarships to three African-American women who are using creative creative writing to address the issue of race in this culture. And just this week I'm meeting with a black women poet from the Poetry in the Schools Project, and we're going to co-create a mentor, a mentoring project where we get a group of kids to work on some poetry that addresses, like, social justice, race issues, etc. And then Living Kindness will publish a booklet of their poems. So that's what I'm doing locally. That's great. So that's what Living now, Kindness uh, is up to. Well, you know, and I did want listeners to know that they, if they want to find out more about the foundation, they can visit livingkindness.org. Yeah. Um, now, now we have, we're down t- toward the end of the show, but there was one quote from your book that I kind of wanted to close out with, with, in, with you talking about too, um, and that's because that's uh, more of an upbeat. And, and the quote was, or the idea, um, engage with joy in in the sorrows of the world. So tell us about it, because we're very aware of the sorrows of the world. So what what about the idea of engage with joy? Engage with joy. So that just means you figure out, you know, what's causing you sorrow and then figure out some joyful way to help ameliorate it. Just like, you know, racism in this country and my own community causes me sorrow. So it's a sorrow in the world. I'm engaging with joy. I call my friend who's a poet in the schools. I say, let's work together. Let's we're going to have a Zoom conference next Thursday night. We're going to make a plan. We'll collectively or collaboratively design the project, roll it out, get find students that want to do some extra writing projects. So that's what it looks like for me to engage with joy in the sorrows of the world. You don't want to you don't want to pick something that you don't have any energy around, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah. I wouldn't be the one to go and volunteer at the SPCA. 
right? That's not <laughs> this, mm-hmm. that sorrow doesn't call me, but I will volunteer to work with you know black and brown teen writers to help give them a leg up and an appreciation for their work and an opportunity to be published authors. And I will do this with a diverse team so that they get to see black and white people working together to cause, you know, beautiful things to happen in this community. Yes. Well, Jan, our time is up. I want to thank you for your time. I, I've really enjoyed speaking with you. It's um, it, I, I love your your perspective, and, and then you, it's a wonderful book on the memoir. So thank you for your time. Okay, send me the link so I can hear this too. I'll send it out to all my peeps. <laughs> Great, I sure will. Thank you very much. Okay, Again, everyone, thank you. today. You're welcome. Again, everyone, today my special guest is Ben Jan Phillips, and we've been talking about her journey as well as her new book, Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic. And again, you can find out more by visiting her website, which is janphillips.com. And on her website, you can find links to workshops, podcasts, videos, and musings, as well as a shop. So, everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. And until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Blog Talk Radio, Amazon Music, and Audible. To follow our show on any of those platforms, visit byteradio.me and select the one you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ByteRadioMe. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch. <laughs>